how many of you were here last week? Wow, you came back. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for that. I, I, I realized that last week was a little bit of a tricky topic, and I thought I would tackle something a little bit more palatable this week. So if you'd like to open up your Bibles to Revelation 17, <laughs> we're, we're going to talk about the great whore of Babylon. And kids, when you get home, make sure you ask your parents about that. Just thought it would be easier to tackle. Now, what I want to do is I want to talk about, uh, I want to touch a little bit about last week. We were, we were talking about this verse from Jesus. Therefore, consider carefully how you hear. And we discovered that Jesus was really, really imploring us, like, hey, pay attention to that. Don't be passive in your hearing. Pay attention to how you listen. And what's fascinating about that verse is it comes right after. Are you all okay? I just realized I just left the gates and just went. I mean, I made a, made a joke about Revelations and are we all good? Yeah. When you look at this verse, you find it right next to the parable of the sower. Big deal. Why is that significant? It's significant because that parable is all about hearing from heaven. And Jesus is teaching the people and he's teaching his disciples. So this, this, this verse here, begin, be careful. Let me start again. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen is in response to the parable that he just told about how we hear from heaven. Right after that is the famous line that Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And right next to this verse is the passage where Jesus tells his disciples this. He says this, the disciples come to him and say, what does the parable mean? And he explains the parable, which P.S. he doesn't bother telling the rest of the audience. He lets their hunger draw out revelation. Right? So the rich, they always go away satisfied. They always know. We talked about that last week. Pride doesn't listen. Pride already knows. But the hungry will be like, what did you, what did you mean? So the disciples ask him, and he says this, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you. But to others, I speak in parables so that those seeing, they may not see. And though hearing, they may not understand. Now, certainly, uh, the, the context of this package is all about salvation. You know, he's talking about the, the, the word from heaven, that some people receive it with joy. Some people receive it and then trials come and they like go. Some people, the thorns of life, you know, crop up and they, they never mature. Certainly this verse and these verses surrounding them are all about salvation, the gospel message that everybody must have their faith in Jesus. But it also equally applies to all revelation from heaven. And this verse should be sobering to us. Look at this. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you, but to others I speak in parables. What's clear from this verse is that while God speaks to all of his children, only some are given the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And though others, though they see the same thing and hear the same thing, they never quite understand. Job 33, 14 says the same thing. For God does speak now one way, now another, though man may not perceive it. See, but Jesus is not giving us bad news here because he's not a bad news person. He comes to preach the good news. The good news in this is that he's given us a key. One way to ensure that we do understand is that we pay attention to how we listen. Do we listen to understand or do we listen to hear only what we want to hear? And then last week, I talked about how humans, we love stories. Stories so pivotal to the way we're made. Our love of story is not a design flaw. It's made on purpose. Story is beautiful. It's helpful. 
Another part of our design that we talked about last week is that we need comforting, especially in times of trouble. And the Holy Spirit would love to be. That's why one of his names is the comforter. But part of our weakness of being humans is we'll often settle for false comfort rather than wait for true comfort. That'd be a good point to say amen to. That's the root of all addiction. I would rather have false comfort than true comfort. There's a danger that in our lives, as we go through life, that we're not content with mystery. That is to be humble and say, God, I don't understand what you're doing, but I'll still trust you. See, sometimes we rush to write stories to make sense of our lack of understanding. And all the Lord is asking for us is, will you trust me even if you don't understand? See, a lie believed is often more comforting than a truth unknown, especially when we're in distress. A second danger is when we wrap up our identity in the story we tell about the circumstances of our life. Have you ever tried to minister to a victim? We have a victim mentality. Like you could quote scripture and the truth all day long, but yeah, it didn't work for me. Well, thousands of people prayed for me. Well, God's gonna be good to them, but never gonna be good to me. Like their identity has to be life sucks. It's beautiful being a victim. You never have to risk. You never have to exercise faith. You just collect pity from everybody. And when they don't pity you, congratulations, they confirmed I'm a victim and everybody else is bad. Now I'm not picking on victims. Although if you're thinking, are you picking on me? You might be a victim. I'm just trying to illustrate that all of us fall into the trap at times of wrapping our identity in our story. That's a crucial mistake for two reasons. The first reason is our identity needs to be wrapped in the sonship of God. The second problem with that is when we make our narrative so intertwined with our identity that when people question our identity, we fight like a badger on speed. (laughs) Because if what they're saying is true and my story doesn't make sense, what does that say about me? Some of you are like, can we go back to the great whore of Babylon? (laughs) That's way more fun. (laughs) Now, what I didn't say last week, partly because there was really no time to fit everything in, is that everything I've just described is not unique to America. And it's not unique to the past election season. As scripture tells us, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. None of this is new. Thankfully, the Bible is just littered Literally, the whole Bible is a story filled with people's stories that contradict heaven. And it seems like from reading the Bible, God is fascinated about the stories that we write about him. For example, last week we looked at the Apostle Paul's story. Remember the story he told himself that allowed him, nay compelled him to commit horrible atrocities. And he's good because he believes the story. How about the famous Sunday school story that we all probably learnt with flannel graph and everything? Remember the 12 spies that are sent out to look for the promised land? What's curious about that story? Remember last week we talked about the difference between fact and story? Facts are events that happen or, or literal facts. We drape narrative over them to weave the story together. Well, their literal job was go out, record some facts, come back and tell us facts. Did they tell facts? 
kind of, but they added their own story. They came back and they told the facts about the land and then they were like, but it will never work. We'll never be able to take over. There's giants in the land and, you know, and we look like grasshopper in their eyes. Is that so? How, how did you know? Did you survey them? Hey, uh, we're from a, an invading country. We're just wondering, how do we look to you? Uh, multiple choice. No, you didn't survey them. You made up a story to keep you safe. And in making up a story, it cost them their inheritance. Now, there's so many examples. When you start thinking in terms of story in Scripture, but the one I want to look at is probably, arguably, the most important one. It's about the coming of the Messiah. There are literally hundreds of prophecies that foretold the Messiah. I, I talked about some of them when I spoke at Christmas. By the way, doesn't Christmas seem like a long time ago? I was talking to a friend the other day. He's like, wow, the first three months of 2021 have been intense. Am I right? <laughs> I mean, Christmas seems like forever ago. But there are prophecies about the Messiah's ancestry, about his birth, about his character, about his ministry, about his miracles, about his death, about his resurrection. Fascinatingly, so they're uttered across thousands of years by different voices, all recorded in the scriptures. So when Jesus arrived on earth, there was a plethora of heavenly revelation, fact, to testify who he was. In fact, the gospel writers made clear that Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. John writes this, John 20, he says this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In the gospel of Matthew, Matthew records Jesus' own words. Jesus said this, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus even said to his disciples in one of those cheery pep talks, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Have you ever read scripture? You're like, yeah, you guys are so dumb. And Peter, you're so eager. And we like sit in judgment, like blessed with all our church history and our you know, new international version. We're just reading it. We're like, oh. But sometimes we think like, what was the problem with Israel? Like you read the Old Testament, you're like, guys, guys, we know the ending. If you just live well, you'll be blessed. What's wrong with you? Not realizing they're afflicted by the same condition as us, namely self-centeredness, selfishness, idolatry, sin, basically. And we can read about the people, like AJ and I were in, in Israel a couple of years ago, and it was just so moving. I know people say this, and you know, we rolled our eyes when people would say this, but to walk on the streets that Jesus walked on, to be there and just be like, ah, oh. and even then, to be there and realize, like, why is the world, like, not altered by the fact that this is the very place the Bible talks about? Why is it that so many people missed Jesus in the flesh when he was there? Hundreds of prophecies, all proven true. What was wrong with you? Why couldn't you see the facts? To understand where they went wrong, we need to consider the historical and political context of the nation of Israel when Jesus entered our world. For Jews living in Israel at the time that Jesus arrived, they found themselves in the unfortunate position of being ruled by Rome. Now, being ruled by an enemy nation was not new to them. They'd previously been subject to Babylon, Assyria, Persia, the Greeks, 
and now about Rome. About 60 years before Jesus was born, uh, the Roman army came in, they captured the holy city of Jerusalem. They set up King Herod, who was a complete psychopath, but with an incredible eye for detail in architecture. <laughs> like when I was there, I was like, too bad the guy was completely nuts, because this is incredible. Now, he was the same guy that had all the little boys who were less than two years, like, by the way, great Sunday to have your kids in. <laughs> uh, he was the, that was this, kind of the cycle. And so this is the condition they're, they're kind of born into. Economically, the people lived with heavy taxation. So the people of God are living in their own country, ruled by a foreign government, this empire, that's so oppressive that's making them bankrupt draining their finances through things like uh, grain tolls and temple taxes and transit taxes and custom taxes. And so these people who should be wealthy according to all the blessings of God are being stolen from and robbed. Theologically, they were confronted with blasphemy as part of their everyday life. In Roman culture, uh, the emperor was viewed as divine an affront to the true living God. Sacrifices were made on behalf of Rome and the emperor. Again, remember, this is the people of God. And they're having to, in their face every day, handling money with the coins of this false God on that everybody is worshiping because it's just ingrained in the culture of the day. And culturally, they were watching things that were being precious to them eroded over time. So their temple, huge significance for the Jewish people, the temple, the second temple that was built, Herod expanded it. And you might be like, yay, that was nice of him. No, he expanded it because he was an egomaniac. He said, we're gonna expand this temple so that I have a capital city worthy of my dignity and my grandeur. Worse, he added things so it was the architecture of it was all Hellenistic and Roman in style, right? Just a totally eroding the culture of the people of the day. Alan, that's fascinating, but I did not come for a history lesson. Like, why are you telling us about the history? Because it's so important to understand that the story people believe is often a product of their environment and their culture. See, for the Jews longing for freedom and longing for liberation. They were looking for, they were desperate for someone to free them from the weight and the oppression of the Roman Empire. And guess what? That's just what the Messiah was prophesied to do. There are so many messianic prophecies that we could look at. I'm just gonna pick one. I'm gonna pick Psalm chapter two and I'm gonna read it to you. I'm gonna help you understand how like Israelites would read this and, and what it would mean to them because we read it and we're not in the same culture, or the same environment as them. And so it kind of loses its meaning. It's like, oh, that's nice. Yeah, okay, kiss the sun, lest you be angry. Kind of weird. Maybe I'll put it on a greeting card one day. I don't know. Uh, but this is what it meant for them. It says this, the kings of the earth and the rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. This is a messianic psalm talking about the Messiah. It says the kings of the earth and the rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. That was their reality. For Jews, they could just step outside their door, live their everyday life, and they had day by day witnesses of the rulers of this earth plotting against the Lord and his anointed one and his anointed people. They were so accustomed to the oppression and to this verse right there. And so can we today. 
It is not hard as an American to see policies that clearly contradict heaven's agenda. It's not difficult to look around and see lifestyle choices that are against God and God's teaching all around us. We, like them, are not short of evidence that the world system of government is in stark contrast to heaven's priorities. You guys all reserving your amens because that was a pretty good point. (laughs) Are you all like, I'm not sure I want to amen so quickly because I know where we ended up last week. How about this, verse four. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then in anger, he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem on my holy mountain. Now, for the Jewish people, this was their hope. Right now, Jerusalem is being ruled by an oppressor. And their prayer was, come Messiah, come and establish your throne. So many of the messianic prophecies were about a king who would lead from Jerusalem and his kingdom would never end. They're just like, God, it would be so good if that happened. Let's get rid of the unjust rulership that is not only an affront to the people of God, but to our whole national identity. If ever there was a time for the Messiah to come and establish his kingdom, it was then. Verse seven, the Lord said to me, this is the Lord now speaking to the Messiah, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. The whole earth is your possession. You will break them, the nations, with an iron rod and you will smash them like clay pots. Now, First century Jews were like, come on with the smashing of clay pots, come on. You know, every time they're having to pay an unjust tax, you know, they're just like, just you wait, just you wait. The Messiah's coming and he's gonna smash you. He's like, they're, they're begging for a Messiah who is gonna right all the wrongs. Desperate for it. All of the messianic words are speaking about setting prisoners free. They were prisoners in their own nation to a corrupt and unjust government system. There were people who were saturated week in, week out with messianic prophecies that you know what, God's gonna deliver you. He's sending the Messiah. He's gonna take the wealth from the wicked and give it to the righteous. I.e., all those taxes you're paying, don't even worry about it. They're gonna come back to you in full. In fact, he's gonna make them your servants. For Israelites, they're just like, come on, come on, come on. Please note, Everything I have read you is fact. All the messianic prophecies are true. The Jews were looking for a Messiah who would do those things for them. They were praying for a Messiah who would do those things. They were believing for those things. They had rock solid, guaranteed, prophetic words that the Messiah would do those things. Like they could not have been better set up to receive the Messiah And yet many people in Israel missed what God was doing because what he was doing didn't fit into their narrative. So many people missed out on the Messiah they longed for because he turned out to be the Messiah they didn't actually want. He didn't do any of the things the way they thought he should. Not in any of the timing that he wanted. And P.S., he died at the very hands of the people he should have been beating and crushing with an iron rod. Some Messiah that guy is. 
Their world outlook, colored by their political views, created a story of what the Messiah should be doing. Because Jesus didn't fit that view, they missed out on him. None of the prophecies, the facts, helped them. Though seeing, they did not see. Though hearing, they did not understand. Folks, I fear we're back in the same place today. People claiming God is doing this, God is doing that, all the while holding up their narrative as proof. All the while missing out on what God actually is doing. Now take a very deep breath, everyone, because this morning we have to talk about all the prophecies that President Trump would be our president and today we woke up and found that President Biden is. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> the reason we have to talk about it is we are a church that not only loves the prophetic, we value the prophetic. And so I know so many of us were just waiting for, come on, Jesus! And then it doesn't happen. And I'm watching the most insane things go out across the internet. Like people tying themselves in theological knots to make sense of it. And I'm like, there's a much clearer, there's a much clearer story that's available to us. And I'm watching people do mental gymnastics to find peace. Furthermore, several of the prophets who we love and are in relationship with have been here and ministered on our stage. So as a good steward of the flock that we have, I need to help you understand some of what's going on. I think there are three key lessons for us to learn. Not lessons, key lessons, which means they're gonna be a little uncomfortable. The first, and the most obvious thing to address is this thing. Deuteronomy 18. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? Anybody had anybody ask you that question this week? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. We have prophets who prophesied that Trump would be in power today, and yet today we find that President Biden is in power. The first thing we need to do is to recognize that the prophets, according to Scripture, spoke presumptive, presumptively. Not according to opinion, not according to political persuasion, according to Scripture. And to not be alarmed by that. Why do we need the warning to not be alarmed? Because it's kind of freaky when prophets we know and we trust don't get it right. Many of the prophets that we, that we know who prophesied these things, we know them. And I want to encourage you, them getting this wrong does not mean they're false prophets. It just means they got a prophecy wrong. How many of you we've taught to prophesy in this house can recognize I've got things wrong before? It just didn't happen to be on a global platform for which we can thank God. 
so thrilled to see people that we love, Chris Valentin and Sean Bowles and others, that we've got a relationship with just owning up to it and just saying, hey, everyone, I'm really sorry. I don't know what happened. I, like, I missed it. I apologize. I admit it. That's so beautiful and so humble and a great example to us all. We all get things wrong. So don't be alarmed that they got it wrong because we're all learning. We're under New Testament grace. The second thing to learn is that we can't leave the prophets with 100% of the blame for the mistake. The church body at large needs to shoulder some responsibility too. Well, why do you say that, Alan? Well, because I believe the Bible. Look at what Paul teaches. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is teaching how prophetic ministry under the New Testament works in the church. And he says this, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is being said. Now, the others there aren't other prophets because he's talking about the church community. He goes on later to say, for you can all prophesy. So he's speaking to the whole body there. In 1 Thessalonians, he says something similar. He says, don't treat prophecies with contempt, which by the way is gonna be the biggest threat. It's like blah, 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 and just throw out everything. No, don't do that. Why don't you do that? Is it because you like these people? No, because I like scripture. And scripture says, don't treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. And then just hold on to what is good. We have a responsibility to weigh carefully what is said and to test all words. Now, I'll be honest. I didn't hear too much weighing or too much testing in the body of Christ. I sure heard a lot of celebrating. I saw a lot of pomp and pride. I saw sectarianism raise its ugly head. The only two voices I heard that spoke up with concern were Beth Moore and John Piper. I mean, how ironic that God would use two people on the opposite ends of the same spectrum. Neither of those people are in our stream, but both are devoted servants of Christ with a lifelong track record of service to the body, with impeccable character. And to my horror, I watched them get vilified because their input was piercing other people's narrative. Guys, not only did the prophets who prophesied Trump over Biden miss it, but so too did we as the body of Christ. And we need to own that. Which brings us to the third point. We have got to address the mindset that in order for God's will to be done, Trump had to win. I don't know of any other way to say it but if our hope was that Trump would be president so God could lead America where it needs to be, then our problem is that we had too much faith in Trump and too little faith in God. And that right there might be one of the reasons why he didn't get elected. Folks, our God is so small if Trump is required for America's future. We are one nation under God. Jesus is our king and he's still leading us and he's still on the throne and that throne isn't up for re-election ever. I don't understand 
How Christians claim with confidence that God only puts some presidents in power. That gone, oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> Maybe the least controversial thing I've said. Oh, <laughs> you're going to love the rest of it. <laughs> Here's the thing, AJ and I moved here. We moved here in December 2008. George W. Bush was still in power, having just lost the election to President Obama. And so the, we started work 1st of January 2009 here. And AJ and I have experienced this at every election. So this is just what it's like. You won't know this because this is you. This is, this is your life. You don't know what it's like. But we come in and AJ and I are watching people we love, people we respect, people we're in relationship with, people we know have a serious relationship with Jesus Christ lose their freaking minds. Oh my God, Obama's gonna ruin America. And I'm just like, AJ and I would just kind of tilt our heads like, what is going on? People losing their minds. He's gonna ruin the country. It's gonna be the worst thing ever. And then eight years later, when Trump gets in, a different set of friends who equally we know and who love the Lord are like, oh my gosh, we have to leave the church because I can't believe nobody's condemning Trump. And big reactions. And I'm like, where is your faith and confidence to be led? And then, as if that wasn't bad enough on Wednesday, we went through again with a different group of friends. So much confusion and so much shaking over something that shouldn't pierce our bubble of confidence with God. Listen, the Bible is very, very clear on what happened in all three circumstances. Look at this, Psalm 75. For promotion comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and he sets up another. Oh, slow to amen the word of God this morning, huh? Listen, I don't know of a promotion that's higher than being the leader of the free world. Let me be very clear. God put President Trump in and he took him out. He put President Biden in and he will also take him out. Our Bibles, which we believe, question mark? Like we do believe the inerrant word of God, right? We believe the Bible. It tells us that God saw fit to not only put President Biden in as president, but to take out President Trump. One wasn't a byproduct of the other. It was a deliberate act by God. He puts down one and he sets up another. Alan, how can you say that? <laughs> Allow me to send you some internet articles and some very informative YouTube videos that clearly illustrate the evils of the Democratic Party. Don't you know this and don't you know that? You're only saying that because you're just brand new American. And we gave you some grace last week, but you are pushing it. You are pushing it. <laughs> I get it. I really do. But my comments aren't from an understanding of the American political system. My comments are based on my understanding of my scripture and my devotion to the word of God. <laughs> Consider this. Do you realize how corrupt and demonic and oppressive the government system was when Jesus came to earth. You're worried about the Democratic Party? Are you kidding me? That is not an endorsement of the Democratic Party. And it's insane I even have to counterbalance that. 
My point is, if you think that's bad, think how bad it was with a complete psychopath like Herod. It was totally demonic in nature. That's why I painstakingly laid it out for you earlier. When Jesus came, there was a seriously corrupt and demonic and oppressive government system. And none of it hindered the purposes of the kingdom of God. Do you realize that the Christian faith that was left in the hands of 12 barely educated, sometimes really flaky men with only three years worth of job experience survived until now? You are here today because it still worked. And there was some of the worst earthly government systems in between then and now, and the church is still alive and well. But for fun, let's just assume the worst. Just as an example, just for a minute, Let's believe that America is going down the tubes at the hands of a demonically controlled false government that got in by mass election fraud. Guess what? God is still in control and it will not thwart his purposes. Part of me seriously wonders if we are trying to shape America for God's kingdom purposes or for our own comfort and preferences. I want to end with two quotes for us to think about. The first is from the theologian John Piper. And he writes this, and he's writing to pastors, but I want you to kind of listen in. May I suggest to pastors that in the quietness of your study, you do this. Imagine that America collapses. First anarchy, then tyranny, from the right or or the left, Imagine that religious freedom is gone. What remains for Christians is fines, prison, exile, and martyrdom. And then ask yourself this, has my preaching been developing real radical Christians? He goes on and he asks this question. Have you inadvertently created the mindset that the greatest issue in life is saving America and its earthly benefits? Or have you shown your people that the greatest issue is exalting Christ with or without America? Have you shown them that the people who do the most good for the greatest number for the longest time, including America, are people who have the aroma of another world with another king? Let me wrap all of this up with a closing quote. I was reading a commentary on Luke's gospel last week, week before. And I, I, when I read what I read, I thought, oh God, this, this is beautiful. I want us to turn our attention back to Israel and seeing what we can learn from their history. Because for many of the people who didn't receive Christ as the Messiah, they were just left wondering. I mean, the disciples were left wondering when he died. It wasn't until three days later, they're like, phew, okay, great. But for lots of people, they couldn't make sense of it. Let me read you this. Luke's gospel takes full opportunity to situate Jesus within the time-space reality of Roman rule. 
and demonstrates over and again how the kingdom of Jesus subverts and overthrows the kingdom of Rome. This subversion does not come in through revolt-like force. Rather, Rome's desire for domination over the world is challenged by Jesus' lordship, which is manifested through humility. Guys, look around. I do not see the Roman Empire alive and well. At times, it would have been impossible to believe that anything could defeat the Roman Empire. What did Jesus use? Not an iron scepter, but the gift of humility. My prayer is that this week we all take time to chew this stuff over, to evaluate the narrative that we believe, whether it lines up with Scripture or not. I've given you a lot this morning. I understand that. But I am really trusting that the Holy Spirit will speak to you as you create space and pray and process all that I've shared. My prayer is that we become people who live and walk in humility as we represent the kingdom here on earth, no matter who is president. Can we stand? Lord Jesus, we are are people who are devoted not to a political party, not to a political ideology, but to a king from another world. And Lord Jesus, I ask that right now that this message, the word of God, Lord, would burn in our heart, that we would take time this week to talk about it with our friends, with our families, with our loved ones, for allow ourselves to be challenged, Lord. We think of your word that says, search me, God, know my heart, see if there's any wicked way in me. Lord, if there are things that we're holding on to that seem right, we understand that your word, say, your word says that one man's way seems right till another presents his case. Lord, would we create space in our lives for you to create your case? Would you give us a heavenly perspective? Would you bring peace to our nation? And would you bless this country? In Jesus' name, amen.